Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 261 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing Prisoners of Gravity, a great science fiction talk show that aired on TV Ontario from 1989 to 1994. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Rick Green. He's written and performed in 700 episodes of TV and radio, including such series as History Bites, The Red Green Show, and Frantic Times. He also created the groundbreaking website TotallyADD.com and has produced over a dozen videos on every aspect of ADHD. He also appeared as the on-air host of Prisoners of Gravity under the name Commander Rick. So, Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here, David. Then next up, we've got Mark Asquith. From 1982 to 1987, he was the manager of the Silver Snail comic book store in Toronto, and he served as an advisor on the documentary Comic Book Confidential. He also wrote the Prisoner graphic novel for DC Comics, co-created Prisoners of Gravity, served as showrunner for the author interview show Imprint, and is currently the producer of special projects at the Space Network. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Good to be here. And also joining us today is Greg Thurlbeck. He was the producer and director of Prisoners of Gravity starting in its second season and running through the end of the series. Since 1994, he's continued on at TV Ontario and is currently producing for the current affairs series The Agenda with Steve Pagan. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, so first of all, I'm just kind of curious about your background to science fiction fans. So let's start off with Mark and have you just tell us how big of a science fiction fan were you in the years leading up to Prisoners of Gravity? Uh... That's a tough question, but I, I got interested in comics at the age of four when I read Tanta, Explorers on the Moon. And then I had a friend called Peter Kirkwood who had the tiny perfect collection. And in that collection were all the great comics and all the great science fiction uh, books. And uh, so by the time I got to first year university, I was well inculcated in science fiction culture. And when I moved to Toronto, I would go to BACA, the science fiction store, uh, every week, and then later added the Silver Snail to my roster of stores that I would visit every week. And then how did you become the manager of the Silver Snail? Uh, I Killed really... the old manager. <laughs> and then... <laughs> uh, I used to work for a company called Coach House, which is a small press publishing company. And uh, I had some skills there that I thought could transfer over to the snail. But I think Really, it just came down to the fact that I was I was really friends with them, and they needed somebody who knew how to organize things and cared about comics. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's one of the great mysteries of life why I was chosen, other than one of the 500 regular customers that came into the store. But I think they just liked me, and they said, uh, why don't you join the snail team? And I jumped at the chance. I, I had come to the decision that comics were and science fiction were going to be my life. And so how, were you going to a lot of comic book conventions or science fiction conventions, things like that? Uh, no, I wasn't really a, a fan in that way. I was a private fan. Um, the first convention I really went to was MapleCon 3, and uh, that changed my life. I met a fan called Elizabeth Holden, who is one of the great letter writers in comics, a guy called Sven Larsen, who was a teenager who later became one of the marketing managers at Marvel Comics, and some guy called Frank Miller. <laughs> who uh, might have had a career uh, later on. And the three of us really bonded. And uh, knowing Frank changed my life because he was one of the people that really, well, first of all, he in encouraged me at the Silver Snail, then encouraged me to leave, uh, agreed to be on 
comic book confidential and then further agreed to be on Prisoners of Gravity. So he was in our corner, uh, right from, you know, early, early on, pre, pre Silver Snail, in fact. Well, that's, uh, that's really cool. And so how about Rick? How, tell us about your background as a science fiction fan. That's a good question. Um, I would say it started with comic books like, uh, well, a variety of comic books, but not necessarily the superhero stuff, uh, much more war comics and so on. That's what I got into. And certainly that be- uh, comics themselves became a big part of, uh, prisoner or subgravity. And then, um, from there, uh, I guess that I'm trying to remember what the very first science fiction novel I read was, but it would have been Heinlein. Uh, probably in school, we had to read some Bradbury, which was a little weird for me. Uh, cause it's a little more like horror fantasy than straight science fiction. But the more I read, the more I liked. And I just, I kept reading and liking. And, uh, I wouldn't say I was by any means, uh, an expert. I read a lot of different stuff. So it's not like that's all I ever read, but it was a big part of my, my growing up. Certainly it was, you know, I was reading a lot more science fiction than anything else. And did you know any other science fiction fans growing up? I'd been to a couple of conventions. You know, when Star Wars came out, uh, I made myself a really wonderful C-3PO costume <laughs> uh, and uh, turned our or my brother's old shop back into an R2-D2 that I tugged around with me at parties. <laughs> and it looked great. I won all kinds of first prize for costume at parties. Um, so I've been to a couple of conventions. Um, and then, but yeah, disconnected from fandom, really. And how about Greg? Same question. How how did you get into science fiction? I was um, not a particularly avid reader at all through uh, my childhood and into uh, uh, university even. And it wasn't until post-university that I uh, got turned on to the genre of science fiction because a friend who I was working with at a small tele- television station in Winnipeg I was uh, amazed that I I didn't read. And uh, she thought, you know, the best way to get you in is with something that has some some good plots and great writing and leap into short fiction. And she really introduced me to uh, Ray Bradbury, Roger Zelazny, Ursula Le Guin, and John Varley. And those were the the folks that opened my eyes to the notion that there was all this terrific writing out there. I'd read uh, Tolkien prior to that point, uh, but it was always a sort of struggle for me to um, to deal with something as vast as that. Uh, certainly, I'd uh, read a bit of John Wyndham in high school, uh, but I I don't come from the comic book side of this uh, at all, really. Uh, my passion, uh, after graduating from the University of Windsor in, uh, with a degree essentially that led me to television was music. And, uh, I went back to Winnipeg and uh, was working there. That's where, uh, Dagmar, uh, introduced me to the reading side of this. Uh, but it was the, uh, the, uh, launch of MTV in the States and then discovering that there was this uh, television station in Toronto, City TV, that had a show called The New Music, um, that brought me to Toronto. And as a result of, uh, that time and the years that I spent essentially on the periphery of the music business, uh, working in television, 
Um, that's how I met uh, Mark and then Rick. Um, and uh, even more importantly, from my arrival on the uh, Prisoners of Gravity team, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Daniel Richler, who was one of the hosts of the new music, went on to work at uh, TVO, where he was the person to whom uh, Rick and Mark pitched the idea and uh, got Prisoners of Gravity off the ground. I can't overestimate, by the way, I cannot overestimate what new music meant. I loved that show. And, uh, I, of course, I had seen Greg's credit on it. And uh, I that was just a groundbreaking show. And I thought any show that could talk about uh, all kinds of different topics, politics and ecology, uh, but under the guise of a music show, um, that's what I wanted to do for a pop culture show. So I pitched that idea to Moses Neimer, who is the head of that corporation. I pitched that idea to the CBC. I, I kept saying, I want to do comics, but I want to do it like the new music. And so, you know, the fact that Greg's DNA was right in <laughs> the new music, that was kind of a perfect fit. And so that's that's how Prisoners of Gravity got started. You kind of pitched it. And did you did you and Rick know each other prior to that? Do you want to handle that, Rick? <laughs> so what happened is that Mark went into uh, TV Ontario and talked to Daniel. And I think the original version was that there would be two episodes of Doctor Who spread over an hour and the eight-minute gap in between, someone would talk about what's happening in the world of science fiction, fantasy, comics, horror. That's right, eh, Mark? That's right. So and that was that was going to be me. I was going to host it and write it and source all the material. And uh, so that was the original idea. Bad but, idea, bad idea. <laughs> then I happened to be in the building pitching some ideas for other shows, a science show, a couple of kids' shows, and so on. And um, somebody said, and somebody said, you need to talk to Daniel Richler, the new head of arts. And I talked to Daniel, and he said, no, these are – or no, sorry, I talked to Daniel, and Daniel said, you need to talk to so-and-so over in science, and this is probably over the kids' department. And uh, he just sort of started at TVO, but he carried a, a great reputation from Much Music uh, where – which, you know, was Canada's version of MTV and in many ways was so far ahead of what MTV was doing in, in and the new music being a big part of that. So I went home to rewrite the proposals and arrange to meet other people. And the phone rang and it was Daniel saying, I have this fellow in here and, and he explained what was going on. And he said, would you be interested in hosting it? I said, sure. Uh, and he said, his name's Mark Asquith. And I said, oh, I play ball hockey with Mark Asquith every <laughs> Sunday. Yes, I know Mark. And so we ended up working together for five years. Uh, on the second season, we were joined by the amazing Greg Thurlbeck, and we were off to the races and working behind the scenes, but doing most of the work, let's be honest, guys, was Shirley Brady. who uh, <laughs> And Shirley was, I don't know if I'd call her the conscience of the show, but she 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 learned about television so quickly. It was astonishing to me how good she was. Okay, well, so, so Mark, I, I want to ask you. So, you, so you pitched this idea, and you said, "I, I want to do this show about where we interview science fiction authors, and we're also going to touch on ecology and politics and things like that." And was the station receptive to that? Well, it was kind of a weird thing because I'd gone in under one sort of premise that I was I was pitching something, but while I was doing it, I said, you know, I really think we should do a half hour show. And I explained what it would be. But Daniel said, we don't have the resources and we don't have the time and there's no time slot. So essentially, 
you know, it's a good idea, but it's not going to happen. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, suddenly, well, actually, we have a half hour slot because we lost the two episodes of Doctor Who. And so can you come up with something? And it was easy because I, I essentially had the proposal. Um, what I didn't have was a name. And so I struggled with that for many, many weeks. And uh, that's and a great story. Eventually, he got the name Mark Asquith. It was great. <laughs> Thank you. No, oh, for the show. Sorry. sorry. Of yes, the show. Continue. The show, uh, right. So it was funny because we were working for TV Ontario. So I originally wanted to call the show TV Zero. They didn't like that idea. <laughs> and But once you've decided that your show has a name, it's very hard to change it. And I came up with probably 50 names. And then at one point, uh, the day that we had to make the name, you know, we had to choose a name. I watched Rick Green's audition tape because I had auditioned, uh, even though I told them I would be terrible on camera because of a face for radio. I said, I'll audition and Rick auditioned. Uh, Rick, of course, was wonderful. But in his audition, he said, greetings, prisoners of gravity. This is Commander Rick. And I forget the rest of it. What, 2,000, 10,000 yeah, miles I said, straight up? So I, they asked me to come in and host a show about science fiction, comic books, fantasy, and asked if I was, you know, had read. And I said, not a lot of fantasy, but yes, lots of the others. So I quickly uh, wrote a quick review of a book I just recently read. I think it was Footfall or something by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. Not a, my favorite book, but anyway, it was recent and a couple of comic books. I ran to the corner store actually and bought a couple of comic books just so I'd be up to, I'd have some current titles to quote. And then I sat there thinking about this and I thought, I can't sit there and talk about, you know, Iron Man and Star Trek and so on as if this is the actor's studio and I'm James Lipton. And so what I came up with was the idea that I wanted to be able to connect all these people, jump around in between them as quickly as possible. And so I had this whole, I came up very quickly, like in a, in a matter of an hour or two, the whole backstory of Commander Rick, who was trying to flee planet Earth, who ended up roaring off in his uh, rocket-powered Camaro, crashing into a television satellite, getting marooned there. And since he can't flee the end of the world, he's decided to try and save the world. And the only people who are talking about the big earth-shaking issues are people who are writing science fiction fantasy comics. And so I I had this premise that I was going to talk to the people who were not just going, the world's going to heck, but going, here's what we could do. We could take a planet apart and turn it into ring world. And so that appealed to me. I have a degree in physics, so I figured I, you know, this, I could bring a little bit of that in and weave that through and so on. And and in the process, I had to have an opening that it was memorable. And I said something to the effect of greetings, greetings, earthlings. Hello, you surface dwellers, you prisoners of gravity. This is Commander Rick broadcasting live 25,000 kilometers straight up as the crow flies, but only if that crow's got a mothering great rocket pack and off I went. And I just, I talked for eight minutes and then they said, and I ran out of stuff to say and they stopped and the camera guys are all grinning at me and, uh, and the voiceover, so they said, could you come out here now? And I walked out and Daniel and Mark said, you're hired. <laughs> and that was it. But, um, but hearing Rick's, that tape, uh, I'd watched it probably 30 times and I had never heard the phrase prisoners of gravity in quite that way as a title. But in the moment of panic, I heard it. And I, and to Rick's credit, we, I walked into the meeting and Daniel said, okay, Mark, what's the name? And I said, prisoners of gravity and rick was the very first person to say that's a great title and i just <laughs> laughed and said well of course it's it's from your audition tape 
And that just seemed like fake because Rick hadn't heard it either. I mean, it's just one of those things that was lying in plain sight. And, uh, and that became, that was a great title. And, uh, Rick's backstory became the opening that Ty Templeton draw or drew, sorry, uh, at the beginning of each episode, um, which was muddled in the first season because the director didn't understand what that was about. But when Greg came aboard, he said, Oh, we have to clarify that story and set up what the show was really about. Uh, which is what, uh, Greg did, one of his great contributions. And so that, uh, gave a real focus and, and clarity and a great way to kick off every episode. What was, uh, what I found most interesting was that it was a, a, a great backstory, but it wasn't fully realized in terms of pulling it off on television. Uh, and so when, uh, Daniel, uh, invited me to, uh, be part of the team, uh, potentially, um, one of the things that I did was really think about, okay, so Rick's left in this rocket powered Camaro. He's crashed into this satellite where he overrides the TVO television signal and broadcasts, uh, for about 28 minutes each week. And that's as long as, uh, he can hold on to the signal. Well, if that is the premise, there is no crew. There cannot be credits, per se. Um, and it was uh, one of the things that I contributed was we have to make up a fake show that can be interrupted every week. And yep. that show can have credits. And so we all uh, we created this show called Second Nature, which was... Um, very much sort of in the vein of what a public television network would show about ecology and that sort of thing. And then we blasted into its intro and took over the airwaves. And then Rick would fade away right at the tail end of the show and the credits would run for Second Nature. And that's where we all took our credits. Uh, and so a lot of what I, I, I tried to bring to uh, the show when I came on was the rigor that is so much a part of science fiction writing. Mm. If you're going to write proper science fiction, you do in fact have to get the science right. Well, if you're going to make a science fiction comic book television show, you got to get the television science right. And that was one of the things that I wanted to try to bring to it when uh, I came on. Well, one of the fun things too about Second Nature is it did look like a, a TVO show. But our interest <laughs> yeah. between Greg and I was, it was, we were enamored of Twin Peaks. And so Twin Peaks, second nature, ha ha, it's a, bit, it's a bit oblique, but we felt it there. And the other thing that happened, and I think it was Greg, but it might have been Rick, but we came up with the idea of Nancy, um, a nano cybernetic computer, the Nano uh, 3000. And that I think I came up with that actually up. in the beginning. I'm not sure though. I don't remember. I just know that when the three of us got together, it was completely clarified. And by certain episodes, Nancy was literally a character in the show. She could fight back and she could type comments and disagree with Rick. And we did one episode about robots and AI, which I remember Rick wanted to talk about old fashioned 1950s robots. And Nancy wanted to talk about the cutting edge of AI, which was great because we got to kind of do the history of robots and Isaac Asimov, but then we also got to talk to people about cutting edge AI research. So yeah, I won't take credit for, uh, for Nancy, uh, that, uh, the, the concept was there, but again, it wasn't properly realized. So 
uh, one of the things that I did when I came on was to, uh, I got permission to get some graphic design work done and we essentially created an interface for Nancy. And that allowed the creation of this alternative voice that Rick could write, a female voice, uh, a voice of the other. And it allowed us to do a lot of things that uh, the commander character could not have done on his own. Yeah, and she could supply extra information. She could, you know, if you had a, a like James Morrow would be on the show, and he maybe he'd be talking about towing Jehovah. She could fill in some of the gaps that that needed to be there, just in terms of Chiron information, like pop up video. But that this was way before pop up video. Yeah, it's worth pointing out how crude the technology was back then. The average, you know, fifteen year old with a home private version of uh, iMovie probably has access to far more simple tools for creating all of these kind of effects and titles and graphics and layers and so on. And so as spontaneous as the show may have looked and as seamless as it may have looked, I, I mean, I was sometimes doing eight or nine takes uh, because sometimes I'd stumble and I was trying not to read telecue you and all the rest of it. But often it was just, we wanted it just right. We were shooting over my shoulder or whatever. There were so many um, steps involved in putting that together. It really wasn't just, it wasn't, you know, the people say it's a talk show. It was not a talk show. A talk show, you set up your cameras, you record it. And unless something disastrous happens, that's actually bad. <laughs> you have to stop taping and re, you know, re-edit or, or cut into it. But this was, this was a production that was put together carefully at the beginning, line by line of what every quote was going to be. And then afterwards in the post-production, all of those layers of every title, everything layered in automatically. And of course, you know, as Mark says, it, it looks like Nancy's coming up with this stuff. No, surely Mark, Greg are coming up with this stuff and, and finding it and putting it in and so on. So, and, and we, I think we really made great use of the density of the screen. The other film that, the other influences at the time, I, it was well past Alien, I guess, but it was, uh, Terminator might have been out by then. And there was just this sense of screens with all this information, you know, flashing hypertext or whatever going on the screen. And this was, I mean, this was 1989. This was happening when the Berlin Wall was coming down. So, uh, it's a real tribute to what Greg and to the editor, and I forget his name. Um, Brian, Brian Karn. Brian Karn. Yeah, Brian Karn. Just the great what, Brian Karn. Yeah, what, what dedication they had to create that and, and, and build that up. It was just as delightful. And that's, I think, a part of why these things stand, still stand as watchable, most of them, because the topics may have aged slightly, but the show was so far ahead of its, anything else in look. Uh, and I, from what I understand, other people have said it was influential in making other things try to copy that look. Well, Rick, I mean, you mentioned that in the show, the, the fiction of the show is that you're talking to all these authors kind of live via satellite, but they were actually all the interviews were pre-taped, right? And then you had to kind of pretend to be talking to them? Most of them were pre-taped. So probably, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, does anyone know how many we did? Uh, 500 and something. I know I, uh, when I labeled up all the tapes after the show, uh, was wrapped finally after, uh, five years, 
Uh, I think now some of those people may have appeared more than once. Oh, I sure. Neil Gaiman may have shown up more than once. Rob Sawyer, a number of them. But, <laughs> but uh, hundreds. Yeah, and of that, less than 30 were by, by me live in studio, I'd say. And most of those were in the first season. So even if when – because I was doing the Red Green show at the same time. I was doing two television shows at once. So I was writing, acting, and directing in one series and then – writing and hosting this, you know, and in terms of writing, I was coming up with my dialogue and what I was going to say and so on. But it was, uh, it was craziness. I was basically uh, one year I had Christmas and half a boxing day off. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was nuts. One, one of the intriguing things about Rick's, uh, uh, dual role there with having two shows is on the red green show. He played a character who never spoke and did all physical comedy. So it was all movement on Prisoners of Gravity. He wasn't allowed to move. And so it was all spoken. So between the two shows, he actually had, uh, you know, one character that uh, <laughs> had enough parts to put together for one person. Exactly. So basically I split. It wasn't when I was doing two shows. It was that I was doing half ass job on two shows and I, <laughs> together. That made a full ass job. Yeah, well, well, so, so, so you said, so you did the 30 interviews, but then for the other, the hundreds of other ones, talk about the process of how those got recorded. Well, season one and two, a lot of two was mostly me. And I remember going to one convention. Uh, I think I can't remember if you went to San Diego with me. Uh, the I first did time. on that, that first year, but you did almost all or all of the interviewing. Yeah, I think I did something like 60 interviews in three or four days. And I remember thinking, I will never do that again. And what was nice is that Greg, at the beginning, wasn't comfortable about doing long-form interviews. I think Greg was fine doing the short ones, or but we didn't really do short ones. But um, the process that I was always really interested in interviewing, and I had started interviewing people in 1968. And when I worked at the Silver Snail, I interviewed all the guests that we brought up every month. So I'd interviewed, you know, Will Eisner and Mobius and all these people. So when uh, the time came to transfer those skills, uh, that was pretty easy. What was difficult and but, but wonderful and freeing about Prisoners of Gravity is the beginning every year we'd sit down, particularly at the beginning of season two, um, Shirley Brady wanted to do interviews. Greg wanted to do interviews. Rick could do some. I was quite happy to do as many as I had to. But everybody had very different backgrounds, as you've heard, and we had very different takes. So at the beginning, a lot of the stuff was me, and I would just get bored of, here's Mark asking that question again. By halfway through season two, particularly season three, hearing Greg interview Harlan Ellison or hearing Shirley interview Ray Bradbury and putting together a show about, say, Mars, was intoxicating. It was so much fun because it got to be discovery for me. Because I might know, oh, Michael Moorcock, the interview that I do with him, it's in the show, and this other interview is good. But Greg would go, oh, yeah, you should check out uh, this Ian Harrison interview, or you should check out this interview I did with so-and-so. And so we would really think about themes. So at the end of an interview, Greg would come back, let's say, and say, I interviewed Harlan Ellison. We did most of it was about Medea Murasaki, so that's going to be the core of one show. But I also talked to him about A, B, C, and D, and I would just write that down in a binder. Then I would watch every episode, sorry, every interview, and then I would 
go through the interviews and go, we've got roughly two minutes on Harlan Ellison talking about utopia. We've got three minutes of Alan Moore talking about utopia. We've got Neil Gaiman talking about utopia for a couple of minutes. Hey, maybe we should do a show. Maybe it's baked. Maybe it's ready to go. Yeah. I think at the beginning of, of season two, uh, we, you know, when, when I came in and as much as that was sort of a core idea that Mark and Rick had had going into season one, it didn't pan out in, in quite the way that, uh, it, it could have. And I think we overshot on season two where we would base a show around an idea and nobody got to talk for more than about 30 seconds. And it was too frenetic. It didn't allow for much in the way of depth. But by the end of season two, we had come up with the concept that this is, this is how a show is going to be built. We'll do a show on utopia. But we went into, uh, we did most of our interviewing over the course of the summer. And so we would go to the San Diego Comic Con. There was one year we went to the Nebula Awards. We went to a World Con. We went to Westercon. We went to, uh, one of the, um, writers groups in, in Michigan and did a whole bunch of interviewing. But we went into those with a list of about 40 or 50 show ideas. In a season, we would make about half of that many. So it meant that a program, a, an idea, could be built over the course of a couple of years of interviews. Do we have enough to do the Utopia show yet? No. You know, we really need Kim Stanley Robinson from that. We'd love to have Ursula Le Guin. Um, and, and so it's not quite baked. Well, you know what? We don't even have to do it this season. We will keep going. Well, and it helped that Toronto is such a center for so many writers in southern Ontario. I mean, Robert J. Sawyer made so many shows because you go, we're going to do a show on dinosaurs. Hey, Rob has written about dinosaurs. And, you know, and some, and it was unusual too, because we would interview editors. We'd interview short story writers. We would interview people who were unknown, like at the time, Martha Sukup. Um, and, but then we also had heavy hitters and, and that range I thought was really, really important. I mean, we had a lot of, uh, women on the show. We had a lot of, um, LBGT. We had a, a lot of different perspectives, which is to me, what was the heart of the show was different perspectives. And we even had, uh, you know, actual scientists and mathematicians, uh, who, uh, what's his name, who wrote the first book about, uh, chaos theory and fractals and James uh, Trafell. Yes. And, and, you know, so we were, because we were getting Gleek, the spillover. Sorry, James Gleek. Oh, you're, you're right. Gleek, we did yeah, Trafell right. as well and Dale Russell and various others. And so oh, we yeah. would get the spillover from people who might be there in town promote, you know, and you would think a science show would be more interested. Well, we were there and TV Ontario had its own sort of complete literacy show that dealt with all the great authors and the great literature and so on. And we would tag along. So we'd send along a half dozen questions, uh, you know, for, um, uh, I'm trying to think who the guy was. Well, the funniest one was God. We did an episode on God. Partly <laughs> Greg had fallen in love with, uh, James, James Morrow, Morrow and was about, about to have babies with James Morrow. <laughs> so we interviewed, we interviewed, we got through Daniel Richler. His name, of course, keeps coming up. We got to interview Salman Rushdie right was in it, the yeah. middle of the fatwa about <laughs> God. And in that show, we also had, um, uh, Douglas Adams and Clive Barker. And you look at that and you go, that's amazing to get 
you know, that range and that group of people on that one show. But that was partly because TVO, as Rick said, did have on inroads into the literary scene and uh, the science scene. And because there are so few producers at TVO, we were all friends and we were all able to talk. And so I might do an interview with Douglas Adams and then give the science team some of the stuff that he had talked about um, and vice versa. So it worked out really, really well. Greg Benford was another one that we interviewed for both science and for uh, Prisoners of Gravity. And, you know, we came in knowing their material as opposed to, you know, if you're an author of a science fiction and you live in uh, Racine, uh, Wisconsin, and you might be allowed to get on the local cable show, Good Morning Racine, and your introduction would be, coming up, Susan Ellis, a lady who loves unicorns and has been to Mars. <laughs> and, you know, they hadn't read the book. Uh, the researcher hadn't even read the book. They'd read the book flap. And so... When we, when, um, some of, the, I guess it was the second season when we were in New York at the one convention and some of the writers we had interviewed were going around and telling the other writers who were reluctant to be interviewed, were saying basically, no, no, these people do it right. These guys know what they're talking about and they've read your book. You'll be amazed. And, and they were. So the other thing that I think happened very quickly is, especially in the second season, when the show suddenly looked so different, so crisp, so clean, it was fast, but it was just jammed with stuff and visual that everybody wanted to be on the show. I, I'm assuming they did. I That was my sense, is that people saw what we'd done and they wanted to be part of it. And, you know, the comments we got from legendary people, uh, you know, like Will Eisner and uh, and other people like that, was they were just thrilled and honored to be part of it. And we were, you know, we're flipped around, thrilled and honored. Wow. We just got him. We just got her. So it was a, it was a mutual admiration society and it was built on creating really great shows and great topics. Well, certain guests really helped us out. Larry Niven was a big fan of the show and, uh, Harlan Ellison and Ray Bradbury pitched, both pitched us to the sci-fi channel in the States. And, uh, but it's interesting. I mean, I interviewed Harlan and I didn't really have any chemistry with him. And so one day, you know, Greg was like, Oh, well, you know, can I take it over? I'm like, Oh God, please. Harlan, our, all we're going to do is fight for an hour. <laughs> and Greg and Harlan really, really hit it off, which was great. And so we got to know, okay, you know, so and so will interview so and so because they really, really get along. I was going to say one of my moments was we were, I think it was at the Nebulas and I was interviewing Dan Simmons. And Dan Simmons, in the middle of the interview, kept kind of counting on his fingers. And I thought, well, what the, there's something weird going on here. So when the interview was done, I, I, I said, well, you know, what, what were you doing? And he said, well, uh, Robert, J I was having lunch with Robert J. Sawyer, and he mentioned that uh, you um, would have read more than one of my books. So I was counting the number of books you were referencing. And how many was it? I, I don't even remember. It was probably seven. But wow. the whole team, the, one of the core ideas of the whole team, and Greg, Shirley, and I, and Rick, all believe that content was really important, and you had to read the material. You had to know the material. And uh, I, I was, I, my interviewing style was different from Greg, but Greg would literally quote back passages. On page 274, you said this. What's your reaction to that sentence? 
and, and that that worked really well un, until you get to Jack Williamson. And <laughs> you know, I, I've just recently read pieces that he wrote in the 1920s, and Jack was a a very gracious and solid interview, but it's not as if he had an absolute command of the motivations behind this character's actions from something that he'd written pre-depression. <laughs> and I don't mean <laughs> yeah. his depression, I mean the Great Depression. <laughs> so uh, it, it was always a challenge as to, it was fresh to me, I just read it. It didn't mean that it was absolutely fresh for the uh, the author. The only person who every story he's ever written is still fresh for him is Harlan. And that was... Ray Bradbury. A, Ray Bradbury. Oh, that's Those true. Those two guys are amazing. Yeah. Ray Bradbury does claim to have, or claims to have an eidetic memory. And so he remembered his circumcision, for instance. <laughs> and that made it onto the show. I mean, did those interviews, did they always go smoothly or was there anyone that you couldn't get or any, any times you had real problems you had to work out? Well, I, I was scheduled to interview, uh, Isaac Asimov and was quite excited to interview Isaac Asimov. And when I spoke to him at the banquet the night before, he said he, he seemed tired. He seemed old. And he said, you know, I don't remember much. I haven't written for a while. And, and so I kind of begged off because I, I didn't want, this hero to be seen as someone, you know, who was not remembering what he'd done. And it, it just, I didn't think it was going to come across well. And so I, I let it slide. Um, and I think that was a w wise idea. On the other hand, uh, the same thing happened with Jack Kirby, where we knew going in, Jack had problems, but Mark, you should tell what happened. Well, I didn't want to do the interview with Jack Kirby, partly because I felt pretty good about the decision not to interview Isaac Asimov, and and I, we had talked about it as a team because it was a big decision. I mean, Rick had yeah. basically flown down to do one interview, and we didn't do it. And I I I just couldn't I just couldn't do it. The, my great hero Jack Kirby, and I just anyway uh, Frank Miller, who was earlier in the podcast, Frank said, "You owe it to yourself. You owe it to comics. You've got to interview Jack." And, um, so the day before I, I, well, weeks before I set it up and the day before I met with his wife, Roz, and, and I, I just, I, I was not going to be good. And, um, but we set it up, it was four o'clock in the afternoon and everything seemed to be a go and I'll see you at four. And the previous interview was, was Barry Windsor Smith, who was supposed to come at three and Barry didn't show up until about a quarter or two. And that was really upsetting to me because that was the only person who ever kind of blew us off was Barry. Everybody else was punctual and on time. And at conventions, this stuff matters. So I asked him about four questions. And then I said, well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to wrap. And very arrogantly, he said, well, who's coming in? <laughs> and I said, Jack Kirby. And he just went white. It was like, oh, my God, can I stay? And I thought, no, you can't. And I would have, wouldn't have let him see it anyway, but... I thought, dude, you made me wait for 45 minutes. There's no way you're staying for this. Right. So he, at least, I said, you can say hi, but then you got to go. So Jack sat down and we mic'd him up. And suddenly, I don't know what happened, but it was a miracle. And he suddenly was Jack Kirby. He was the king of comics. And the interview went on for about 22, 23 minutes. And right at the end, I asked him a question about how inspired he was by his family. And it was a wonderful answer. And then I could just see his eyelids flicker, and I knew 
that that was it. We were done. So I thanked him very much. And then everybody other than Jack and I burst into tears. The cameraman was burst into tears. Everybody, And there was this weird sense that he had absolutely risen up and 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 gave this great interview. Uh, we went in thinking we weren't going to get much. I mean, I thought we wouldn't get much. But we did a whole show on Jack Kirby, which was wonderful. And I'm very, very pleased with that show. Not our best show, but certainly one of the most rewarding. And at the end of it, uh, Rick and I were in the office. Um, I get I, you, you probably remember it better than I do, Rick. But I think it was Boxing Day and the phone rang. And uh, I, I it, she, it, Roz said, uh, hi, it's Roz Kirby. And I said, oh, hello. And she said, well, I just want to call and thank you because the grandchildren are over and we've watched the episode about 20 times. And uh, hang on, there's someone I want to wanted wants to talk to you. And it was Jack, and he was very frail. But all he said was, you're good men. You are good men. And tears are streaming down my face. And Rick is looking at me like, okay, who died? And I got off the phone, and um, and I said, that was Jack Kirby. He just called us good men. And uh, that was that was unbelievable yeah. highlight for us. And Rick, uh, you know... Rick did a great job of kind of setting up who he was, and Mark Evanier did a great job of giving us information. But Greg Throwback, that Greg and Brian Karn were so great about all the images. And, you know, I remember going in and getting all these Jack Kirby images and finding stuff that nobody else had and calling up people like Dave Gibbons and saying, Did you ever ink, you know, do you have a copy of something where you inked Jack Kirby? And every, the whole community stepped up. But then Greg would come back to me and go, um, we need more Fantastic Four. <laughs> we need more images. And, and it was so tastefully done. It was, it was a real team effort. It was a really, yeah. very, very interesting moment. I certainly cannot, uh, compete with, uh, that story. Uh, Marx should have been the third story in this run. And I think <laughs> at, at the beginning, but the, the one that got away on me, uh, was John Varley. And, uh, John is, uh, known as Herb and, uh, he is fairly reclusive. He doesn't like to speak. Uh, I've been uh, trying to get in touch with him and arrange for an interview for a number of years. And, uh, Spider Robinson is a good friend and I've interviewed Spider a couple of times. And so he made arrangements that uh, we would be able to do an interview. And I was at a convention in um, uh, Seattle, and um, Herb was not there. I was going to drive down to Portland and do the interview at his home. And I drove all the way down to Portland, and he canceled. <laughs> and so we never did get... John Varley. And as I mentioned right off the top, that was one of the authors that really introduced me to what science fiction could do, where it could take you, how it could explore things that were very difficult to explore in mainstream writing. Um, and uh, that that's the one that got away from uh, from my point of view. It tells you, though, something about why people write, because He's just not comfortable in front of a camera. He may be right. very, you know, maybe he was social phobic and so on and shy and, and he may have had uh, stammers, uh, whatever. There's reasons why sometimes people bow out of these things. And, uh, I often wonder if 
Jack Kirby maybe is the exception, but when someone's really reluctant to be interviewed, I've rarely found them to be sparkling interviews after that. That said, I mean, we never did get uh, an interview with Orson Scott Card, for instance. I did interview him uh, a couple of years later. We were working on an, another program that uh, didn't end up coming to uh, to be a series. And uh, I did manage to interview Scott Card at that point. Um, he, uh, we had sent him some videotape of the program. Uh, I think he respected the program, but actually thought that us setting it in a science fictional world, uh, this, this fake uh, satellite, worked against it. He didn't like that format and uh, didn't want to be a part of it uh, for that reason. Odd for somebody who builds those worlds himself. Maybe he didn't think ours was serious enough. Um, but when <laughs> I did finally interview him, I mean, here's somebody whose work I really enjoyed, um, who is prickly in quite a different way than Harlan is prickly. Um, and he enjoyed the interview. I enjoyed speaking with him, but it's not somebody who you ever felt the least bit close with from an interview. Whereas James Morrow, Nancy Cress, Stan Robinson, um, a lot of these people, uh, I mean, we went out for breakfast with Connie Willis and her husband uh, when we were in San Diego. And uh, I ended up talking about gymnastics because I used to be a gymnast. Her husband coached it. And, uh, you know, you you did build up relationships with many of these people uh, that were, uh, they welcomed us into their community because they realized we respected it and understood it. Mm. And that was tremendously gratis gratifying. At the same time, it didn't mean that we couldn't be uh, constructively critical of uh, when work wasn't quite as strong or, um, uh, when people misstepped and, and did something and you go, you know what? Fred Paul, you may have thought you were talking about racism in a particular way, but boy, that story doesn't age terribly well. I, I mentioned that particular example because right now, for the very first time, I'm reading Dangerous Visions. And Fred Paul's The Day After the Day the Martians Came is one of the first stories in that. And it is a racism story. And oh, my goodness, reading it now, it uh, it doesn't wear well. Uh, but those are some of the challenges of, of working in a genre that allows you to take those risks and talk about taboo topics. Sometimes. It's taboo at this moment, and the way you've handled it is respectful and interesting and makes people think. And then decades later, it makes them cringe. Well, actually, on that, I want to read some of the titles of some of these episodes. So you have episode titles, Vietnam, Racism, Sexism and Feminism, Homosexuality, God, Politics, Sex and AIDS. I mean, it's interesting to me that Scott Card thought that the show wasn't serious enough, given how deadly serious a lot of the topics actually were. Yeah, but the host is in a costume. The host has green hair. The host is up in space. He has a, a magical computer that he talks to. Um, you know, there were, I can understand it. I, he, I think the term he actually said was he refused to be interviewed by a costume host because, you yeah. know, he, he wasn't going to do Vampirella. And, uh, and at first glance, the show could be seen as that. Uh, 
So I can get why people are reluctant. Uh, I mean, today, God, today I don't know what it would be like because so many people, authors and so on, are so primed on what to say. They've got their talking points and so on. But I always felt like our interviews with comic people especially, but with authors as well, um, it, in science fiction and in fantasy and horror, that they were really um, conversations and they were groundbreaking. It wasn't like they were they were giving you their sales pitch, their freight catchphrases and so on. They were really struggling to describe what they were trying to do because they'd never been asked about it before. It wasn't like they had pat answers to everything. And some people were much smoother at that or better at that. And I think partly it's because they had thought about that. Rob Sawyer pops to mind as, as one of many. But there was also this delight when you would ask something, when, when Mark would ask a comic artist, especially because everyone, you know, what wanted their artwork, but when he started asking them about what the effect was and what they were doing and so on, you can see them light up as they discuss the effect they're trying to create and whether it worked or whether it didn't and who they admire and so on and why they love that piece of work. And and the best part of the Watchmen episode was hearing people who were not involved, you know, that that were not the writer or the artist, and they were the ones just explaining why it was so groundbreaking and how it affected them and so on. So there was this, there was a a vigor almost, or a, and a a real dance to the interviews, I think, and to the show, you know. And, and the other thing that's interesting to me is a show that's about science fiction. Well, why are you doing Vietnam? Well, there is you know some science fiction set in Vietnam, but a lot of the you know the Forever War is written by a Vietnam veteran and echoes the war in Vietnam, and it's, you know, it's a science fiction story. So it, the science fiction itself was taking on, and fantasy and and comics were taking on all of these topics as well. Yeah, I just recently rewatched a few of the shows. I've got a stack of DVDs that I had burned uh, at the time uh, sitting right beside me. And um, going back and watching, I watched the Memory Show. I watched uh, the post-apocalypse show. Well, and hang on, Memory. Memory was Memory and Amnesia. Well, and it was I think two that episodes was... uh, because we ran out of time. And Rick's closing <laughs> line is, "I can't believe I forgot to talk about Amnesia. <laughs> we'll do it next week." So I only watched the Memory one. And uh, what what was lovely was the way Linda Berry. Uh, the comic strip artist is in there and she talks about how memory is based on nouns and how you think of a particular pair of shoes and that sparks a memory for you. And to then have that person juxtaposed against another person and Harlan talking about uh, the smell of a woman's perfume as she walks by and how that triggers memory. There was, there was a, a breadth that was created by all of the different perspectives. And as Mark mentioned earlier, Rick, but even more so because the, the bulk of the interviewing was done by Shirley, Mark, and myself, and each of us came from different perspectives. And yet all of those perspectives became a piece of Commander Rick. Commander Rick had a personality that 
I contain multitudes. Well, maybe not quite, but I contain three other people for sure. <laughs> and uh, then there's Nancy, and she sort of contains those people as well because, uh, I mean, Rick did by far the vast amount of uh, the, the largest chunk of the writing. But all of us contributed to it, and it made the commander such an intriguing character to uh, be the curator of all these little bits of interview. Yeah, and it's what I would think I was contributing was the verbal wordplay and the, you know, think there's a classic example of I can't believe I forgot to talk about amnesia. I mean, that was the kind of stuff I was contributing. But there was also, there was an editorial point of view in the questions you were asking. Mm -hmm. First of all, in the talk, you know, you could talk to Isaac Asimov about foundation, about a thousand different aspects of it. What aspects are you going to talk about? And, you know, what interested you? What interested Shirley? What interested Mark? And what interested me? Those were in the questions, not at which led to the answers. And then very often, um, you know, where I was left with was sometimes it was, we, we need you to go from the Hernandez brothers to Harlan Ellison. And here's what they're talking about. It's like, Oh boy. Okay. Let me see what I can come up with. But other times it was, I was given, um, a real description of, you know, th- why this is important. Cause I didn't know all this stuff. And Mark, you know, whoever had read the books knew the material, um, and would say, this is what's important about it. Or this is why it's, you know, groundbreaking or whatever. And then it was, so I was getting educated. I think we were all getting educated, of course. Absolutely. In from, doing this. from one another and from the, the people we had interviewed. One of the real tricks of doing the interviews, because it had to appear that Rick was doing them, was that if I asked a question, A, I couldn't keep talking. Once the person started answering, I had to shut up because my voice could not be on the audio track. I couldn't encourage the person with a, right, (laughs) I could nod, but nothing I did could be visible or audible during the interview. And so it, it, there, it was a challenge to sometimes, you know, you want to jump in and, and lead the person in a particular way. Um, but we had to be very cognizant of, I have to be able to get myself out of this interview completely so that it looks like Rick is doing it once we put it to uh, uh, into the program itself. And, you know, it's funny because it, that seemed to come naturally to Shirley, Greg, and I. So that was, an, as a person going through all the interviews, we were very good at not stepping on people, which was really great. But I want to throw in one fun interview I did. The first interview I did with Douglas Adams, um, we, we got an hour with Douglas Adams, which was great. And it was for a book called Last Chance to See. But, of course, we wanted to talk about other things. So I talked to Greg about what interested him about Douglas Adams. I talked to Rick about what interested him, Rick Green rather than Commander Rick. And then I thought, I know what I'm going to do. It's second nature. So the host of second nature is going to get Douglas Adams to talk about his new book. And they're going to talk about ecology and all the stuff that you would expect from a host of a nature show. And then Rick is going to jam it and become uh, Commander Rick and ask questions about comedy and science fiction. And the way we did it is the first half hour of the interview, he was uh, Douglas Adams, who was on one side of the camera, and I asked all the science questions. And then while the, when the tape ran out, I put a new tape in. I moved chairs. He <laughs> stayed in the same place, but now the eyeline was different. And I sat on a couple of phone books uh, just so the eyeline would be right for Rick, uh, Commander Rick. And then 
because Enrico Gruen was doing the other interview. And what was funny, at the end of the interview, Douglas Adams turned to me and said, I think that's the most schizophrenic interview I've ever done. <laughs> and he wanted to see what we'd done, and he loved it. He couldn't believe it. He said, that you, how many of you are you? And I said, well, we're basically, you know, five or six people. And, uh, and he loved that idea. I think he liked, but he loved the schizophrenic nature of that. And that was an unusual example of limited resources and what we had to do in terms of an interview. But uh, we were creating different personas. And, and the funny thing was that um, the, that the Commander Rick persona, this, and then there was this host, Enrico Gruen, the host of Second Nature. And so there would be this pompous voiceover. It was kind of a David Attenborough t- uh, character at the beginning. Coming off solar-powered nightlights or whatever, <laughs> there'd be some kind of odd, silly two or three things, and then it would fade out. And there were this, there was this great banjo music and shots of geese landing and so on. Well, when the show, the second season with the whole opening recut and this whole thing constructed where this op- fake opening starts, and then about twenty seconds in, it starts to break up, and then we go to the me connecting up, uh, you know. Uh, basically car jumper cables to a, a, a panel and saying, this is Commander Rick, I'm interrupting. And then we went into the opening with the great music and so on. And so when I went to the uh, library, the spaced out library, where I would do some of the research uh, and asked them, well, what did you think of the second season? It's different from the first. They didn't like the first, but I said, did you see the second? I said, oh, yeah, we turned into watch, but there was some nature show on. <laughs> I was like, oh, Okay, maybe we shouldn't be going thirty seconds of fake opening because we're every you know this was there were there were remote controls back in nineteen eighty nine so already people were were quick to change channels so we did it we shortened and tightened up the beginning but I thought that was pretty funny well it upset me for about ten seconds like oh my god all these people turned us off but uh, the ratings showed in fact that. Uh, We've gone from a lot of people watching the very first episode to almost nobody watching the rest of the season. And then in season two, three, four, five, it just kept building and building and building. It was great. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, Mark, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier that the show was pitched to the Sci-Fi Channel at one point. And certainly when I was a kid, I always, Prisoners of Gravity is exactly what I wanted to see on the Sci-Fi Channel. I was always disappointed that there was nothing like that. Could you just talk about why that didn't happen or kind of what your experience was with that? Well, Sci-Fi had a show called Buzz, and they thought that was a great show, and they would keep their show, and Harlan Ellison was part of their show. But I think Harlan thought, no, 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 you need to have Buzz and uh, Prisoners of Gravity. So um, it was essentially a non-starter. Uh, in some ways, I'm glad of that, because I think we might have had uh, difficulty uh, getting the show on just in terms of delivery. Uh, and Greg and I tried to sell the show, I guess it was at the end of season four to PBS because at this point we had a good feeling that, that we were going to be canceled. So we were looking at other places where the show could be so we could get revenue to make the show. Um, and they and- bought 10 shows, uh, and those went on, uh, 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 an assortment of PBS channels. It did well in some markets, partially because they understood what they were doing with it and had it adjacent to programming that made sense. It was in an evening slot. It would be up against or up next to a science program or a a Doctor Who. Several of the channels put us on in the Saturday morning slot thinking we were a children's program, and it didn't do well there. And it really showed uh, a (laughs) misunderstanding 
an inability to watch the show for one thing and judge it on its merits. Um, and so the, after that 10 shows, it just sort of drifted away. There were a number of stations that wanted a whole lot more, but not enough to make it financially viable for TVO to uh, do the clearance of all of the material. We had clearance forms signed by the authors and such, but there were various other things that we made use of where we had Canadian rights only. And that unfortunately um, got in the way of a potential to uh, open the show up to uh, a North American wide distribution of any sort. I mean, what do you like? I, I mentioned that I just came across the show on YouTube, and that's how there's there are about thirty episodes on YouTube. Um, kind of, what is your take of, on the show being on YouTube, and do you how many people do you think are finding it that way? I think you'd only have to look to see how many people they usually tell you how many views. Um, I, you know, it's great because um, uh, I wish that somehow it was earning money, and then there'd be the possibility of actually doing more of them and so on. Um, but uh, no, it's great that it's getting out there. Otherwise, it just sits there in, um, you know, in in a vault somewhere or uh, in a stack beside Greg's desk, and nobody gets to see these groundbreaking interviews with amazing people. And well, well, I think the show is also dated well because people that were our friends or people that we we that were you know part of our community are now superstars. So we did an interview with you know several interviews with George R. R. Martin. Uh, a few interviews with uh, a few interviews with Neil Gaiman. These people are superstars now at a level, you know, I mean, when we did interviews, I, th I would say our superstars were Anne Rice and Ray Bradbury and Michael Moorcock and, and John Brenner and Brian Eldis. But in, in the rear view mirror, suddenly people like Robert J. Soro, who's won a ton of Nebulas and Hugos and is very honored, uh, obviously Neil Gaiman and George R. R. Martin. So the shows, because we chose well, um, and projects like Sandman and Watchmen, those books are still being talked about. They're still relevant. And, and that becomes really fascinating because uh, even a show like Metamorphosis, where you've got Alan Moore and Steve Bissett talking about Swamp Thing, those books are still influencing, um, comics today. And I hear all the time from people who go, Oh my God, I can't believe you interviewed Alan Moore, I can't believe you got Neil Gaiman in 19, whatever it was, 89. Well, we did. And though it almost becomes a historical artifact. Um, and seeing all these people who don't have gray hair and are <laughs> young and, you know, and that's pretty fun. I mean, that's, I didn't know. I mean, I remember at the end of, uh, at the end of Prisoners of Gravity, we were on a panel at a convention and somebody said, how many do you like? And I think I said, well, I think I like 12 of them. And at the time, that's how I felt, you know, that, which is okay. We did 137 shows, 10%. That's not bad. But some of them have aged incredibly well. We did a show on information, um, that really was a kind of, uh, real Shirley Greg and Rick and I all really collaborated on that one. And, uh, I think Greg even threw in a U2 video at the end of that. And that show really it's even more relevant now than when we did it. We did a show on fairy tales focusing on how um, women's, you know, women had reclaimed fairy tales uh, in the uh, 90s. And that show's still relevant today. And, well, obviously, as I say, the show on comic book, um, we did a show on comic book layout. 
And you got Will Eisner and Howard Chaikin and um, Frank Miller and Scott McCloud. And it was essentially the very first interview that Scott McCloud did on understanding comics. The book hadn't even come out yet. And so you look at that and it's it's now a historical artifact, which is that's fun. I, I haven't gone back and rewatched the homosexuality episode. I suspect that's one that perhaps has not aged <laughs> as well as some of the others. You know, this was a time before uh, the term LGBTQ uh, was in existence. And we were treading into territory which was uh, not well explored. And I think there's probably some clumsiness in that. Other pieces, though, where it was more of a, uh, a mature um, subject uh, in so far as it had been discussed, maybe not widely in the mainstream, uh, but it was something that people were thinking about. Uh, the zero population growth episode um, would hold up really well after all this time. Some of the, the main science fiction tropes, time travel, immortality, those will hold up well. But I suspect there are a few that, uh, you know, like my criticism of uh, the Fred Pohl story, some of our shows will not have aged as well as they might. Uh, but, you know, I, looking back at some of these, I'm amazed with uh, a couple of decades since I last watched it closely and going, wow, you know, that, that's really pretty good. <laughs> And I'm, I watch them and I'm laughing at the jokes because, you know, you've forgotten. So it's, it's, I obviously wrote stuff I thought was funny. So then I'm watching myself and I'm laughing at what I, I'm like, boy, I, I used to be really clever. What, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great to see them, to see that, like, you're so busy producing it and doing it. You have no perspective at all. Um, and so to be able to look at them now and see, Geez, this crackles right along and it's, it's sassy and it's lippy and, and especially later on, I think a lot of the, uh, the people we interviewed, good portion of them had seen the show. Uh, some of them were repeats or some of them had just were aware of what we'd done. And so they, they really seem to match the energy level. And I don't know. I just, I just think the show's got better and better and better. I agree with you that it's really fascinating to the extent to which the show kind of serves as a time capsule. Now, one thing, Rick, that really jumped out at me when I went back and rewatched it this week is you talk about how comics are getting really popular now and San Diego Comic-Con is up to 20,000 people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now it's 10 times that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's, so it's a time capsule. Yeah. One of my favorite pieces that I looked at that still holds up. And this, despite the fact that Making this effect for television was really, really complicated at the time. And that is in the memory show where about 18 minutes into the program, uh, Rick introduces cyberpunk and Nancy, the computer tells him he's already introduced cyberpunk and Rick is confused by that and isn't so sure. And so Nancy rewinds the program. And we keep it on screen. And we, in order to do that, because the machines that we were working with couldn't go backwards and show the picture at more than five times normal speed, or it may have been three. So we had to do it once. 
And then we had to do it again. And we had to do it a third time in order to get it fast enough so that we could rewind through all of the interviews that we've now seen up to this point. So you as a viewer goes, oh, yeah, there we are. We're going backwards, going backwards and bring it to a stop with Rick in the same spot that he was at the beginning of the show. And he does a different introduction. And it's all on screen. You you can't see where the edit happened. And he does. He introduces cyberpunk instead of introducing what he actually delivered. And it's lovely with that 18-minute gap between when you saw it the first time and when I now show you something slightly different, how you question, hold on, what, is that what happened? And we cut back to Rick, and he goes, oh, yeah, now I remember. And, of course, it never <laughs> happened because um, we we made it up. We were much cleverer then. We, <laughs> we don't come up with ideas that clever anymore. The, the whole fake news thing was us. Basically, this was the first example <laughs> right. of just lying and claiming something and people going, I guess so. It's on television, you know. So. <laughs> See, Mark, did you mention it sounds like there are kind of conventions where Prisoners of Gravity fans will have reunions still or? Well, no, we did a, a couple of years ago at uh, Toronto's Fan Expo. Uh, they did a 25th anniversary panel for us, which was great, and it was well attended. And it was very moving. And there were some very good questions and, and a lot of uh, feedback. Uh, and a lot of it happened actually before and after the panel. So once we'd wrapped the panel, people would come up to Rick, Greg, Shirley, and I and just say, you know, this is I'm a writer now because I used to live in Thunder Bay. Um, I remember pitching the show to Daniel Richler. And one of the things I said is, I don't, I'm not sure that this is a show for people from Toronto, uh, where there are major conventions and where you can go to the Silver Snail or you can go to uh, Baca. But if you're living in Thunder Bay, if you're living, you know, in a remote place in Ontario, this, you'll be the one person watching in maybe, you know, Ancaster, but this will be the most important show to you. And 25 years later, we'd have these people come up and we go, well, I'm now, you know, drawing for Marvel Comics or I just got my first story published. And the reason is because I, you know, I saw Prisoners of Gravity. And that's incredibly moving to me. Um, that That's more than any of us could have hoped for, to be that kind of an influence on creative people. Maybe we destroyed lives. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, but just our own. That was a, that, yeah. But it was a great thing to see. And, and. There's a lot of affection for the show now, um, and and that's that's wonderful. I think it's because you're seeing these artists not pitching a company line or a rehearsed sales pitch, but they're really struggling to describe what they're doing and what they've done and why it worked and what didn't work or what they saw on suddenly on. I was looking at this page in Watchmen, and I suddenly realized what Dave had done. It was, oh, my God, this is amazing. And uh, – there was that sense of this. There was a sense you were listening to creative people describing their creative processes, their thinking processes. It was just, it was invigorating whether you were going to go on and write anything. And, and I, you, you got energy out of it. But I also think what's really worth mentioning here, and I think this is one of the areas we were way ahead of the curve. But if you look at all the specialty networks now, right, the mil not just the History Channel, but the Military Channel and so on, there, um, we were specific, you know, what we called speculative fiction and comics. So science fiction, fantasy, horror, and comics, those were our, our 
uh, our milieu, there was another show that was on the air at the same time that dealt with all literature, all great writing. And it, so they talked to the, the big names, the people everybody knew. And we regularly beat them in the ratings. And I think the reason is if you're a fan of uh, thrillers and you love Linwood Barclay and people like that and you're reading those horror thrillers, you're not that interested in hearing um, somebody who's written witty, growing, coming of age in San Francisco or, or historical fiction or whatever. You're, that's what you're interested in. So the shows, and it wasn't that it was a bad show. It was a great show and they had a huge budget and they had amazing guests, but they tried to be all things to all people. And so I can see that whatever your interests are, your maybe one episode in five will have something that really speaks to you. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but with our show, if you were into any of those four or five worlds, you regularly heard from uh, people who were covering what you were interested in, who were coming from those fields, names you'd read or names that you now wanted to go out and buy and read and so on. So it, there was this niche marketing in some sense, or it wasn't intentional by any means, but we went after a very specific market and we served it so well that the people who were in that market, the writers, the artists, the editors, the, and the fans grabbed onto us. These guys are doing it right. And I think that would have been, I, I almost pity anyone trying to just do a show on literature and books because how many books are there every year? You know, and whereas if you were doing a show just on self-help, improvement, uh, development, and spiritual books, you might have a very rabid audience. I mean, Greg, is there anything you want to add just kind of about the legacy of Prisoners of Gravity? It was a, an absolutely spectacular time in television. I had, uh, you know, had a, a terrific experience working on the new music for seven years. And then I had an awful year where I was uh, working at another television network. It, it didn't work out. And getting that opportunity to come and join with Mark and Rick, Shirley, uh, Brian Karn, the editor, and contribute to that and help it grow in, in different ways than it, it might have was tremendously invigorating. At the same time, it was an absolute ton of work mm -hmm. most m most weeks that i'd be in a, the edit suite through until three o'clock four o'clock in the morning taking a cab home and then particularly if it was a wednesday night and then we were meeting to construct the next couple of shows on thursday getting up and being in the office again by nine thirty, it was not something that you could sustain for a huge amount of time. One thing, however, that I wish we had managed to do, we did talk about trying to do a last episode which <laughs> revealed the fakery of everything that we had done. You'd be able to pull out wider on the set and see that it was actually built in a basement. There'd be a set of stairs and a washer and dryer and Rick's <laughs> mom or Rick's <laughs> wife would come down and haul had to him be up mom. for dinner. Uh, and and we never got to do that concluding piece um, that that it would have been really fun to do, to, to show that we understood 
It's all been fake all along. Now, that being said, I do want to add one more uh, little thing. Mark earlier mentioned Twin Peaks. And occasionally we would do things that were so buried in the show that were fun for us. And we never really expected anybody else to even take note. I think it was the music show that we did. And there's a point at which Rick has his little keyboard in front of him, not a musical keyboard, but a a computer keyboard. And he's sort of bashing away on it uh, as if he's doing music. And we put up random letters on the screen to indicate, you know, what he's in fact typing. Buried in the midst of those random letters was a line from Twin Peaks, a line which had supposedly come from outer space. And we did hear from a fan of the show who caught it. (laughs) And that made it all worthwhile. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that we were laying claim to something in Twin Peaks, that we had originated that message and it showed up on another. It was just one of those little goofy moments that you go, Wow, I hope somebody notices this, and, and they did. Science fiction fans will notice that kind of stuff. That <laughs> yeah. was why you knew it wouldn't be 100% of them, but you knew there would be some people out there who would catch it. Have there been any other shows like Prisoners of Gravity, or is that just too much work and no one else wants to stay up till 4 in the morning making this kind of show? I think a Kathy Lee and Regis was similar. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, they had two hosts. There are, uh, there are television programs being made by passionate people all over the place. So I, I don't know that you can say, is there anything like Prisoners of Gravity and say, no, of course there is. It's a question of what do we mean by like? Uh, there, there is great television being made in one form or another by passionate people who are willing to put their heart and soul into the medium that they are working in. Similarly, and it may not be film. television. It and, may, yeah, similarly yeah. in film and books and comics and all of those things. Podcasts. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and in fact, I think podcasts have really, really, podcasts really seem to mirror the kind of energy of Prisoners of Gravity because they can, because they don't have to go after a mass audience. They can be very specific, like what you're doing, David, and that's, that to me, if our legacy has become anything, it's not that we affected television. It may be that we affected podcasts. Well, that's why I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I, cause I mean, certainly my goal with this podcast is to talk, is to do kind of what we're saying is to talk about the serious ideas in fantasy and science fiction. And there was a kind of a funny line from the show. I wonder if I, do I have it here? Um, but Rick basically says, I've been up here for two years talking about trying to save the world with uh, fantasy and science fiction. And I don't know if that's that's how I see myself, is trying to save the world with science fiction. And I, I guess you guys feel the same way. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think we were doing it by getting people to read stuff that opened up their minds, that got them thinking creatively and got them also going, maybe I can actually create some of this stuff. You know, how much science fiction is really fan fiction? It's never published as a book. But uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think... I made sure that was in that opening was just, you know, if you, I said, if you can't flee them, save them. It was basically the message. And, uh, and then, you know, there's the model of the spaceship and the car stuck in it and me up there trying desperately each week to find 
find a way to talk about what matters. And I think if there's a through line throughout Prisoners of Gravity, it's very simple, and it's human beings make this stuff. And that's that's a really basic thing. But I know a lot of people suddenly read, oh my God, that person wrote that. That person drew that. It's a really, really basic idea, but it's a, a fundamental pillar in Prisoners of Gravity is that human beings make this stuff. Yeah, it's. I, I find it interesting to, to think that aside from Mark, who has, in fact, written comics and so has been part of this genre from inside as well as from this observational point that we were taking with the program, Certainly, you know, I worked on a music program because I'm a really, really crappy guitarist. And there's no way I will ever be a musician. And yet I had this passion for music and was able to work for quite a number of years in a way that helped build that industry and people's awareness of it. And I felt like I was contributing. I will never be that kind of writer that can put together that short story or that novel. I'm, I, I, I can't write a sentence without immediately going back and editing it. And so my progress is immensely slow. Now that can work for the kind of writing that I need to do for television. I would not be able to write a, a drama for television. Uh, but we brought our creative strengths, each of us, to this project. And it's one of those times where the sum is greater than the parts. Without Shirley, it would not have been the prisoners of gravity that it became. Without Rick, without Mark, without myself, each of us, without Brian Karn, it would not have been the program it was. But we didn't need two Marks. We didn't need two Ricks. <laughs> we needed this hodgepodge uh, amalgamation of the personalities that were there uh, to create that piece. So I don't know that you can really say, oh, well, we could just make some more. We aren't those same people any longer. And the industry isn't the same as it was at that point. I do think that Prisoners of Gravity was of its time. I hated to see it go when it did. I thought we still had more that we could do. Mm -hmm. But in the end, you know, we left on a high note. The industry moved on and uh, became very different than it was at that time. That's not to say that we couldn't do something along those lines. I don't know that we would make the magical piece of television that we were able to on a shoestring budget with just a few very passionate people if we were to try and uh, resurrect it or do something uh, similar again. Uh, I think it was of its time and uh, can be... I, I, I love the fact that you can still go back and watch those shows and get something out of them that it still remains relevant. Um, I think that's really important and shows that we were doing something right, uh, but I don't know that you could do it again. I think the fact that we were four people, basically, there was crew and five with Brian. Um, I think that if we'd had nine people, 10 people, it, it would not have been clear. We were, we were all such a powerful part of each of us bringing that voice and working together creatively. And we were like-minded. There was nobody grandstanding. Okay. Mark was, but the rest of us <laughs> were getting along. And so, yeah, I think that's the other thing that's magical about it. Having done, you know, been with the frantics, been with the red green show that both ran for many years or, and it had long lives. It's when people 
get out of each other's way and just there's this what it is is a mutual admiration society and that uh and there's this creative trust and there's people pushing each other and then sometimes going no no that's you know and very often it was mark saying no you can't say that because there's this or or greg ultimately going no we're taking this back here and keeping us focused surely as well i think everybody but me was able to pull it in i kept spewing it out and then they were able to take that and and bring it back but i think the fact that it was a small group you know if the beatles were a 30-piece orchestra it would have been different (laughs) and and i think that there's truth in that yeah rick could only handle so many personalities he wasn't sybil quite Um, for me, it was very, very moving to have an idea in your head, to be passionate about something, and then to have people come on board. And uh, I learned, I learned so much in those uh, four years. Uh, it's unbelievable to me when I look back. Um, you know, partly to have people go, "Yeah, we believe in your idea." But a, a good example of that was we when we went to England. I interviewed a bunch of people, and I thought we'd get a show uh, that would be about Alan Moore. And when we came back, Rick said. Oh, no, no, no. Like, we're going to do a whole show on The Watchmen because you said that went really well. And I don't think that would have occurred to me. I mean, I thought The Watchmen would be a module within a larger show, but he was right. And the number of times that people would kind of check each other, uh, and for me, it was, you know, Rick and Greg and Shirley saying, you know, I think that's a really good idea. We should follow that. And often I felt like the gatekeeper because I was the person looking at the topics and try to pick which ones we go. But I would say we don't we've got six guys talking about homosexuality. We need women. And then people go, okay, we'll go find, you know, Mars needs women. So we'll go do that. And so it was very, very, very collaborative. It was also fascinating to work with Greg, who really understood television at the level of pixels, who really, I mean, I remember the one of the very first shows, well, in fact, the first show we edited was the Will Eisner show, even in season two, even though it aired third. And that show blew me away because it was the first time Greg would go, okay, we'll take the top of that Will Eisner interview and we'll take out that 20-second thing in the middle because it's kind of redundant, and then we'll use the end and we'll cover it with images of the spirit. And I, that was mind-blowing to me. And partic- remember that Greg is doing this on a linear editing system. It's not like Avid now where he can move pieces around. This was really mathematical and really structured. And the amount of planning that Brian and Greg, well, particularly Greg, had to do was amazing. And I remember one, just one more thing I have to throw it about Greg is he interviewed Will I, he interviewed Harlan Ellison about censorship. Harlan went on for almost half an hour and Greg turned it into seven minutes of glorious, <laughs> angry Harlan Ellison. And I think it, that one is on YouTube. That was great. It's great. Well, I mean, speaking of YouTube, I mentioned that there are about 30 episodes of Prisoners of Gravity on YouTube, which means that there are about 100 or so that aren't. Is there any way to, is there any hope of anyone being able to watch those in the future? TVO has been digitizing uh, the library uh, recently. Um, Unfortunately, again, this goes back to the rights issue uh, for TVO, which is a publicly funded government organization. Um, and they're really sticky about this kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, we're certainly hopeful that at some point all of this is going to become available. Uh, I do not know, can't speak for the organization as to uh, what their plans are in terms of releasing it. But uh, we all would love to see it out there. 
Uh, maybe not one or two of the shows. <laughs> the <laughs> ones that didn't quite come together. But uh, for the most part, uh, we'd love to see the material out there. And uh, anything that we can do to, to help push it that way, uh, we would do. Uh, and as I say, I do know that TVO has is in the process of taking all of that tape and turning it into uh, digital files. Uh, yeah. they do have I think I need to. Uh, I need to knock on some doors and just push them. And uh, you know, I have enough of a profile. I think uh, I won the or was appointed to the Order of Ontario. I think I should use that as a card and say these need to be out here. Yeah. And maybe, maybe even get some of the uh, one of the reporters to do an article about it. These lost gems that are sitting there, because that. That would make a difference, legal or otherwise. I mean, we got on the air despite the fact that we didn't have clearances for a lot of the artwork. So there's got to be a way to get it out there. And uh, anyway, we'll see. Yeah, just the fact that there's 500 or something interviews with all these, the biggest names in fantasy and science fiction and comics. I mean, that's got to, they can't just disappear. You know, people need access to that. We did make sure at the end of the run uh, that all of those interviews were kept. So they still exist. Uh, the original tapes are still part of the library, and uh, it has not been bulk erased by anybody. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, so hopefully that'll all be uh, available at some point. And uh, so, guys, we are pretty much out of time. So I guess just to, to wrap things up, I'll just go around and have each of you, if there's any final final things you want to say or any other projects you want to mention, just let people know about. So how about, uh, Greg, is there anything else you want to just anything else you want to mention at the end of the show here? Well, it's been interesting. I'm now working on a current affairs program, uh, five days a week, one hour a day, and uh, the ability to bring some of the science things into that program. So I've uh, fairly recently done pieces on CRISPR. I uh, did uh, an interview with uh, Ed Yong that I produced. He wrote a book called I Contain Multitudes, which is about the microbiome. Um, so we still maintain some of our interests, and I continue to read. As I say, I'm uh, reading Dangerous Visions for the first time uh, currently, uh, but I'll also put a plug in for uh, Robert Charles Wilson's latest book last year, which uh, is one of the better pieces that I have, uh, better novels in science fiction that I've read in some time. All right, cool. How about Mark? Uh, final thoughts? I don't really have any final thoughts. I, I'm still immersed in the science fiction of fantasy and comic book world because I'm producing for Space, which is Canada's national science fiction channel. And uh, so for me, um, I don't miss the material. The material is pretty much the same. What I miss is the team, uh, and I, I miss that team dearly. But uh, uh, hey, you only you know, live a couple I've of been blocks able away. To <laughs> talk about comics and. <laughs> time for a barbecue uh but you know in terms of my work you know i i I, it's been a lot of fun and and i i get to still do it which is really humbling to think that since 19 really 86 i've been able to interview people about comics and put it either on film or television uh that's that's amazing i i'm i'm the luckiest man in the world and then to have this team and I don't think I would be in television if it weren't for Prisoners of Gravity. I think if I did resign at the end of the first season, and I I think if Greg had not joined the team, that would have been the end of Pog for me. And um, I, I, you know, it changed my life because when the show, 
after the second season, not only did I feel great about the show, but the show garnered all kinds of awards and all kinds of things. And the feedback that we were getting was wonderful. And it gave me confidence and it made me, because I watched, you know, Greg and Rick and Shirley work so hard, I learned how to be a better television producer and frankly, a better person. And and we shared a lot of our personal lives with each other, and we're all still friends. We got together, as I say, a few years ago for that uh, anniversary. And, and, you know, I have to say humbly, this show changed my life. So I'm very happy to talk about it. I'm very happy to talk to th- with these guys about it. And um, I, you know, I have no desire to go back, but that's only because we would, Greg is right. You you can't capture lightning in a bottle again. It's very hard to get the band back together. Yeah, I, and I'm. What I'll say is is simply that I didn't realize that we were creating lightning in the bottle at the time. It's only in being able to look back. 10, 15, 20 years later and go, oh my God, this is really quite good or see the list of names. And, you know, there's George R.R. R. Martin and uh, I've heard of him since then, since 1992, when he's talking about whatever the book was he was working on at that point. It's funny, so, actually, because one of the intros, it says, you know, George R. you know, George R. R. Martin is a science fiction writer, but he also writes fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that's... Uh, you, you, we had so much fun doing it. It was so challenging. It was, it was so rewarding because you just find these connections and links and these shows would start to fall together. And, and you're talking with people who are really imaginative people. So the answers they're coming up on how to save the world or how to save the planet or how to lay out a comic book are really interesting. And, uh, so yeah, I, I I think it was just it was an amazing experience, and at the time we were I was so busy doing that and doing Red Green that at the time I just I didn't really get how great it was, and I maybe that part of that is just the legacy of you know those were at the time the outlaw genres, despite the fact that the year that we made the first episode, uh, that first Batman movie with Michael Keaton sold two hundred fifty million in merchandise before it opened, so they. The the uh, comic companies and everybody else were starting to go. Wait a minute, we should make sure we have the rights for this. And uh, we were, and yet they were giving us permission to use images and and so on from stuff many years before or re- more recent. So that that's a tribute to what we were doing. Yeah, you know, it's it's just a terrific show. It's called Prisoners of Gravity. I would strongly encourage people to go check it out on YouTube. I just I, I think it's this kind of stuff is so important, and I would li- love to see more of it. And, uh, yes, I think we're going to wrap things up there. And so we've been speaking with Rick Green, Mark Asquith, and Greg Thurlbeck. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for including Mark. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't have, but, you know. (laughs) And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Rick Green, Mark Asquith, and Greg Thurlbeck for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Sam Idle, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.